I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Well, that's uh, two more rows of onion sets in. Uh, that change in the time to give us another hour in the evening is very useful. But before I go indoors and get cracking on the podcast for this week, I must just rake my footprints out where I've been standing alongside the line to plant those sets. I hate to leave footprints in the soil. My thanks for this week's sponsor, Hayloft Plants, Pershaw in Worcestershire. Hello and welcome to This Week in the Garden. I'm Peter Seabrook, here to exchange some news, views, a bit of seasonal advice and hopefully answer some of your gardening quandaries. Walking down the path to get back indoors... I had to stop and admire the Magnolia solangiana. I've got a really lovely specimen in the back garden now. It's up on a, well, three foot, four foot trunk and in full bloom. I just hope that the frost forecast this coming weekend doesn't turn them brown. But at least I've had the best part of a week to admire it. Two beautiful days weather earlier this week and warm enough to be outside in shirt sleeve order. Not for long, I fear. You know what they say, ne'er class to clout till May is out. And while the hawthorn is opening lush green shoots on the warm sunny side of hedges, we have some weeks before it breaks into flower and the May blossom is out. An encouraging email from uh, Andy telling us the uh, gardening tips in uh, this podcast he finds helpful. So I must remember to uh, keep them coming. If, uh, like me, you have onion sets to plant, sit indoors with a pair of scissors to just snip off the wispy tips before going out to plant. It will leave uh, less for birds and worms to pull at and disturb your careful setting out. Most of the tips are prompted really by just pottering about in the garden and I've uh, just been looking at, at the new bed of roses planted here at home. I've got two beds. We have the Precious series up at Hyde Hall. They were planted a couple of three months ago and have light, fairly thin growth and so they were pruned back really quite hard. I mean they were I suppose about 12 inches tall when they came, bare root, best part of half of that growth was pruned off. While the charisma at home, it had long, strong, thick stems and uh, 
looked to me as if they could well have been left in place. Uh, but now I see they should have had at least a couple of inches pruned off to make them bush out closer to the ground. They are making lovely, rich, dark red foliage, perfect as a foil if uh, underplanted with red tulips. You know, I can see red tulips against that rich foliage absolutely shining out. As it happens, I've uh, planted a semi-double uh, pale pink, and I think the pink might work quite well with that rich foliage. It is worth looking to the growth in spring. I mean, if you've got um, a rose, what shall we say, white flower carpet that has a, a really light green young foliage, then you need a yellow tulip really to come up and contrast with that. The beauty, of course, of underplanting roses with tulips is that as the rose foliage expands, so the dying tulip foliage is uh, hidden. Uh, by the way, if you had uh, um, black spot mildew or rust disease last summer, when this new growth breaks in spring, it's the perfect time to apply a protective spray. I mean, if you're using something like uh, Rose Clear, a combined fungicide and insecticide, spray late evening so the insecticide has time to work through the dark hours before rising sun breaks down the insecticide when uh, beneficial insects, of course, will uh, then be on the wing. Boy, you can't beat a mug of tea when you've been out working in the garden. Now, what's new this week? In the post, the just-published hardback book, The Garden Designer's Survival Manual by Alan Sargent, has arrived. Alan was founder of the Association of Professional Landscapers, uh, has uh, 50 years' experience in garden design and landscape construction, and in a covering letter, he tells me he's donning his World War II tin helmet. Now, this work has uh, gone public. Garden designers can have uh, artistic temperaments, you know, but there are plenty of useful words of advice in Alan's uh, latest publication, I can tell you. A message too from the Royal Horticultural Society working with Coventry University who ask us to watch out for the Oriental Sweet Chestnut Gall Wasp, Dryocosmus curifilus. It makes the leaves puckered. You have a white disfigurement on the midrib and uh, infected buds. A sweet chestnut can live for 700 years and it would be a uh, a pity to see them knocked about. I love the fissured bark on them. Uh, apparently this uh, latest pest in high numbers can weaken the tree and make it more susceptible to other pests and diseases, particularly the uh, sweet chestnut blight. It's always something in there. Uh, if you do happen to be out walking, go through a sweet chestnut wood and you see this gall damage on leaves, then the uh, RHS would like to hear about it. On more pleasing news, um, Sutton's have just uh, launched a new Judas tree, Circus Eternal Flame, with stunning foliage. It opens a glossy red and then feigns... 
It opens a glossy red, then fades, burnt orange changing to yellow. Amazing colours that uh, stay all spring and through the summer as new growth develops. You know, all of the uh, Judas trees uh, like a sunny, well-drained position and then the wood ripens really well for next spring's flowering. And of course, Circus is unusual in that the flowers just come out of the bark before the leaves open. Eternal Flame was bred by famous American Judas tree breeder, Denny Verner, and after 10 years of crossing and trialling has uh, come up with this really quite startling introduction, which is offered both by Sutton's uh, and will be for sale on Hillier's Garden Centres. I'm absolutely delighted to welcome to our podcast today and uh, I'm somewhat in awe, I think it's fair to say, of Kenneth Cox, uh, the third generation plant hunter and rhododendron enthusiast extraordinaire. Ken, how are things up in Scotland? Um, well, the, the good news is the sun's been shining for a few days. It's, it was 19 degrees in Edinburgh yesterday. Wow, that's for March, that's pretty amazing. Well, it, was, um, and, it, was, it was overcast and cold here. <laughs> yes, yeah, so I heard, so I heard, because we had a few Zoom contacts, the people down south, they couldn't believe how beautiful it was up here. <laughs> but, um, and Nicola Sturgeon has finally given the go-ahead for garden centres to reopen on the 5th of April, so uh, I guess that's quite positive. Glendoic has been fortunate enough, because we have a food hall, we managed to, we just negotiated with the council, we're allowed to open in a limited way, so we've been open for about 10 days now only for selling, you know, seeds and seed potatoes and, and limited stuff and food and essential stuff. But anyway, we're, we're, we're trading, so it's better than nothing. Yeah, it's been a very difficult time, hasn't it? I should perhaps explain that you are nursery people and garden centre operators, um, specialising particularly in rhododendrons and azaleas, uh, um, and you do quite a bit of exporting. Yeah, so our... Mail order nursery was started in the 1950s and we have been sending plants all over Europe. We used to send them to Japan and, and North America and even Australia and New Zealand, but conditions don't allow that anymore. But basically Brexit has um, essentially completely stopped our export business. You know, on the 1st of January, that's the end of it. And the reason is that we uh, field grow our plants because they're much easier to grow that way, much more environmentally friendly, much fewer, fewer inputs, you don't have to water and, and so on all the time. And the Brexit regulations say that any plant that's had contact with the soil is not allowed to be exported anymore. And that includes to Ireland and Northern Ireland, which is our biggest market. And this came as a complete bolt out of the blue. In fact, it even blindsided the plant health authorities. In January, they sent me the plant health forms that we needed to fill in to do export. And then in February, they read the regulations and said, I'm sorry, you can't export anymore. I talked to the Daily Mail about this a few weeks ago. And I said, I know that your take on this will be to blame Brussels for it, but it's nothing to do with Brussels. These are importing regulations for plants into Europe. They've always applied that if you wanted to bring plants in from Kenya or whatever, they had to be free of soil. And because the UK refused to join the single market or the European free trading area, it has to follow those rules. So something that worked incredibly well for 30 years now can't happen. I mean, it's the most devastating thing that's happened is it's meant the Scottish seed potato industry, which is one of our biggest exports, has now basically been kiboshed because potatoes are obviously grown in the soil and, and they're not allowed to be exported anymore. 
I mean, it means we really have to survive on UK sales alone. So that's where we're at. It's not a very positive situation. I mean, the Scottish government are incredibly focused on trying to sort this out. But being unable to export to Northern Ireland is, is another sort of fairly crazy situation where uh, Northern Ireland garden centres have been told they can't bring stock in from their suppliers in, in the UK anymore. It's not a plant health issue. And, and the other thing is really important to, to emphasise, this is a one-way rule. The EU can export freely into the UK with no restrictions. It's not, it's not a both-way rule. It's, uh, so there's no problem us getting plants from Holland that have been grown in soil. We haven't applied the same rules that the EU is applying to the UK. So if you ask me one single thing the UK could do, it would be to say to the EU, OK, we're going to reciprocate on this. We're going to say uh, you have to abide by the same rules, and which, would, which would kill the import of all plants from Holland stone dead immediately. And then, and then that might bring a bit of weight to the whole argument, mightn't it? Well, obviously the Dutch wouldn't like that situation, and I'm sure a lot of UK businesses wouldn't like that, but it might, it might force the issue, so maybe that is one way of, of doing it. But I am not in any way wanting to blame the EU on this. Uh, the EU is simply applying rules that already existed, that the UK actually had signed up to. The UK was involved in making the rules that they are now having applied to them. It is not Brussels, it's the UK that's made this choice, and it's the UK that needs to get us out of this mess. Well, that point is very clearly made, Ken. Hopefully we can uh, add some weight and support. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Can we move on then to um, more uplifting things? I believe that uh, you're following in the footsteps of your grandfather and your father in terms of... Uh, plant hunting i think my plant hunting days are probably f over now not because i don't like plant hunting but basically the the kyoto protocols which came in i suppose about eight or ten years ago have more or less made plant hunting um what well, they've made it very very difficult now i have a lot of sympathy with the reasons the protocols exist um for those who haven't heard of this it's basically about each country owning the rights to its plant resources and it's mainly because of U.S. companies going around patenting genes. I think that was the uh, the, the thing that, that precipitated this. They, they would they would um, try and patent genes that had come from plants, say that they collected in the Amazon or Costa Rica or wherever it might be, so that the American pharmaceutical companies would get the benefits. The countries such as China and Brazil, who have very amazing plant resources, said, "No, this is not fair. 
The West has been plundering our countries forever, taking stuff without asking, naming them after their friends and relatives and taking the benefits and the plants. So now every country, in theory, owns the rights to its plants and therefore they can't be exploited commercially without a benefit going back to the host country. The problem with it is that many plants grow in the wild over several countries. So at the moment, it's quite difficult for, for countries to actually claim the benefits from these plants. The one country where it's worked very well is Costa Rica. They have a 50-50 benefit sharing thing with, with US pharmaceutical companies, and they have lots of endemics, lots of plants only grow in Costa Rica. It's a very rich country in that way. So if they find a plant that cures cancer or whatever it might be in Costa Rica, uh, the benefits will go 50% to the pharmaceutical company that's put the investment in and 50% to the Costa Rican government. So that that's an equitable sharing of, of the plant values. So it, it is a situation where, to some extent, the sins of the 19th century and the 20th century uh, have come back to haunt us now and we're no longer allowed to go plant hunting and looking for new things in other countries, bringing them back. So uh, it's a pity, but I quite understand why it it's it's happened and uh, I'm, I'm, I was extremely lucky to have a period in the 90s and early 2000s where I could go to Tibet and northeast India and explore places that hadn't been explored before and I mean it was a, an extraordinary time and I, I'm, in, I'm incredibly lucky and privileged to have managed to do that and um, discovered new species and named them and all that sort of thing it's all very exciting but um, I think pr probably that's that time has gone there. But how about the day-to-day -day activities of life? If, if you go into what are quite remote areas of uh, Tibet, India and, and China, how, how do you cope with food and sleeping and who takes you? And what about, what about all of that? What? Okay, so the first thing that you need in these areas is a fixer. You need someone who really knows how to do this stuff. When we were in Tibet, we had this... Uh, Chinese guy called Herhai that I met in 1992 in Yunnan and um, he um, basically sorted stuff out in Tibet for us and if we hadn't been for him we'd have never got anywhere so we had very good contacts there and then various contacts led us to a guy called Oken Tayang in uh, Arunachal Pradesh in India which is just over the border from where we'd been in Tibet um, and he was extremely well connected. He had his brothers were in government, and his uncle was the chief minister, and also it was really useful. And so whenever he, he he managed to get us into places that people hadn't managed to get into before, he ran a travel company. He was very young when we first met him. He must he's probably about twenty, I think. And we were his guinea pigs, so we taught him how to look after Western travellers, if you like. And he got us into places that that we, we, we you know whatever. But the the, the key is always to find out which local tribe is the dominant one, because sometimes in a valley there are three tribes and you have to make sure you're with the dominant one, because if you choose the wrong one, uh, the other tribes will basically uh, do things to stop you getting there. So, so it, there is quite a lot of politics involved. And they basically look after you. you. They are hunters and they also go on pilgrimages. Those are the two reasons they go into the mountains. So you basically go on a hunt or a pilgrimage. That's what happens. And when you're on a pilgrimage, you have to go around the mountain clockwise and you can't deviate from the pilgrimage route. And I've had a few fights, actually, where we'd agreed we were going to do something, go over a pass and down the other side. And they said, no, no, we have to complete the pilgrimage route. That means we have to go back to where we started. And we said, but we'd agreed to go to the other side of the mountain. And they say, yeah, well, we're not doing that. 
and they would run and they, we could never keep up with them. So they would run off with all the baggage <laughs> and set up camp. <laughs> and we just had to follow them because there's no way we could have achieved any of this without these mountain people. They are, they're extraordinary. Um, one, one of the things they do in Arunachal Pradesh is they hunt rats over the fire. They toast the rats at night and they singe all the fur off. If you've ever smelt a, a dog that's gone too close to the fire and you can smell the fur burning, it smells like that, but a bit more extreme. Um, and then they offer us the rats and we, 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 we've tasted them, but we mainly lived on dal. Uh, lentils in Aranachal Pradesh. That was we had dal for breakfast, dal for lunch, and dal for dinner and rice. <laughs> oh, goodness, <laughs> I, I don't relish that somehow. <laughs> I mean, what happens if you're taken unwell again? <laughs> well, the interesting thing about being taken unwell is that almost never happens in the mountains. It always happens in the hotels on the way in or the way out because there are power cuts in India quite regularly. And, um, and so the fridge, refrigerator, refrigeration goes on and off. And, uh, and so you're really at risk. Whereas if you go and eat, I mean, if you eat rice and dal, you're not going to get ill. I, I'd say we, we very, very rarely had any problems in the mountains. It was much more when we were coming in and out. Somebody proudly told me that he'd, he'd had fish in Kathmandu. And it was obviously sea fish that he'd eaten. And I said to him, do you know how far Kathmandu is from the sea? And they said, no, now that you mention it. And how, how do you think this fish got to Kathmandu? In the back of a truck, sort of 1,500 miles or whatever it is, I don't know, to, to the nearest. And I said, you know, I really wouldn't advise eating seafood in Kathmandu for that reason, because obviously it's got there and they've been put in a fridge or whatever, and there's power cuts or whatever. So, so yeah, if you want to be safe, eat street food, eat vegetarian and and don't eat Western food in expensive hotels because that's how you tend to get ill. That would be my advice. Now, Ken, you've chronicled quite a lot of this in books, a very impressive array of titles. Uh, anyone listening who wants a bit more information on uh, your plant hunting experiences and indeed on some of the species that you've brought back that are unique to your travels and your dad and your granddad, uh, wh where should we head them? Well, I Frank Kingdon Ward was a great English plant hunter um, from the nineteen so nineteen ten to the nineteen fifties. He he was operating, and he wrote a book in nineteen twenty five called Riddle of the Sangpo Gorges, which was probably the greatest plant hunting book I think. Um, and it had been out of print for for many years. Um, and so, in after we'd been re exploring that area, we decided to republish that book with a whole lot of new chapters on, on and, and sort of photographed everything that he did in that book in colour. I did it with a couple of American explorers who'd been working with National Geographic in the same area, uh, and we hooked up and worked together on this book. So it's called Riddle of the Tsangpo Gorges. It was published by uh, uh, Antique Collectors Club in, in East Anglia, who did a lot, have done a lot of plant hunting books, like Roy Lancaster's books as well. Um, you probably know the the plant hunting in China that Roy's book, fantastic book. Yeah. And also my father's book, Seeds of Adventure, which he wrote with Sir Peter Hutchison. Um, that was uh, another enormous tome on all the expeditions in China that, that Peter Hutchison and my father did in, in hunting for plants. It's a very, very heavy book. It's 2.2 kilos because my, my wife and I <laughs> tried to get my father to edit the book. And we kept saying, well, do, you could maybe take a little bit out. 
And he said, no, I'm not taking anything out. If I did it, I'm putting it in there. <laughs> so <laughs> so um, I, what I've said is, I mean, I don't know how, if you read it in bed and you fall asleep, you may not survive. <laughs> You'd be crushed by this book. It's so enormous. Fascinating stories, Ken. But before you go, uh, one or two words of advice to the home gardener to encourage them perhaps to plant a few rhododendrons. We haven't mentioned at all that you operate from Glendoik. So could you uh, just tell us where you are, how people get to you, and a word or two of advice on rhododendrons. They'll be coming into flower shortly, won't they? Yeah, they will. Yes, they are. Some some of them are out already. So Glendoick is on the east coast of Scotland, about an hour north of Edinburgh, on the A90 between Perth and Dundee. Um, and we have a garden centre and a, and a mail-order nursery. And I'm sure most people know that rhododendrons need acidic soil, which um, about... Three quarters of the UK has naturally acidic soil. So it includes most of the West Country, Wales, Cumbria, most of Scotland, and large swathes of England. But anywhere where you've got uh, alkaline water, chalky kind of conditions and so on, is not suitable for growing rhododendrons. But I think people generally know whether they're in rhododendron and acid-loving plant areas or not. You can grow rhododendrons in containers if you've got alkaline soil but if your water is alkaline then you've got a bit of a problem because it's really the watering of the plants is the key so if you if your if your tap water is extremely alkaline and you water your rhododendrons in containers with that that won't work you need to collect rainwater and obviously if it's if you've got a dry summer you're not going to get enough rainwater to have acidic water for your plants rhododendrons and azaleas are pretty easy to grow if you've got the right conditions they don't like being waterlogged um, and they need um, reasonably open soil. They're not good in clay soil. They don't like that. They need their roots to breathe. They're very shallow rooted. And if you've got the right conditions, they're very long lived. You can prune them if they get too large. You put them in and essentially most of the time you can forget about them. Ken, you're an absolute font of information. Uh, I'm uh, privileged to speak to you today and I hope that we might be able to bring some pressure on the government to uh, get some common sense in terms of your export activities Uh, and hopefully we can speak again sometime in the near future with better news in that respect. But thank you very much today for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Um, It's a great privilege to be talking to you, Peter. And uh, and, uh, uh, yeah, we've we've known each other for a long time, so it's, it's great. It's great to see you. My thanks for this week's sponsor, Hayloft Plants of Pershaw in Worcestershire. And to my producer, and of course to you for listening. Something a little bit different uh, for the tailpiece this week. You know, after uh, our interview, uh, chatting to uh, Ken Cox, I learnt that uh, he's a pretty good musician. Plays guitar and piano, composes um, songs, and performs in public. Seems appropriate to... uh, end this podcast with his music called Sweet Earth.
catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 